You're listening to Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. You're with us here on the Ideas Network. Bottled water is a $300 billion global industry and the most consumed packaged drink worldwide. For many Americans, bottled water has become part of our everyday lives. But that's a pretty recent trend that has grown over the past few decades. Not that long ago, it was a punchline. Drink the bottled water. I feel silly buying it, though. Just Maybe I'm just too Midwestern, you know. It's like... Whenever I go in a store, I'm always like, hey, how you doing? Yeah, I know I can get water free from any faucet, but I want to pay for it. I'm just curious, do you have any air back there? Can I buy your garbage? What do you think about it? It is water, right? How did we get to the point where we're paying for bottled water? That must have been some weird marketing meeting over in France, you know? Let's just tell the Americans the water's from France. (laughs) We bought it. That's comedian Jim Gaffigan doing a stand-up routine back in 2000. So why now do so many Americans spend billions of dollars each year on bottled water? In a new book, our next guest digs into that question and says that bottled water is part of a deeper story of the environment, inequality, and the commodification of a public service. You can join us at 800-642-1234. Do you drink tap or bottled water at home? Do you buy bottled water when you're dining out or traveling? Have you switched over to carrying a reusable bottle? And uh, were you part of the story a couple decades back when Perrier looked to bottle water here in Wisconsin? Big, long controversy there. You can join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. Daniel Jaffe is Associate Professor of Sociology at Portland State University, where he researches the social, environmental, and economic impacts of bottled and packaged water. His new book is called Unbottled, The Fight Against Plastic Water and For Water Justice. Daniel, thanks a lot for joining us today. Thanks, Rob. It's great to be here. Before we dig into the story behind bottled water, I don't know if people really realize the scope and the change uh, that's happened. I remember when you know, it was kind of like a joke where, so, oh, you've got a glass bottle of Perrier. Ooh, fancy. And now it's this dominant product. Can you talk about the rapid rise? Sure. Well, I started the book with a story of saying I'm, I confess that I'm old enough to remember a time when I was in grade school in the 1980s when, uh, you know, a pl- single serve plastic bottled water was really not a, a product that anybody had thought of yet. Mm-hmm. Um, 1980, Americans consumed just two gallons per person per year on average. And it was pretty much as the comedian said, Perrier and heavy glass bottles uh, thought of as kind of an odd product. And somehow we got from that to just over 40 years later. Americans consuming 47 plus gallons per person per year on average, Uh, 90% almost of Americans consuming some bottled water, and uh, really surprisingly, one in five Americans um, refusing the tap entirely when it comes to drinking water and getting all of their drinking water uh, from packaged bottles. And so in researching this book, I was looking into that riddle of how we got there. Um, And I found just, you know, to sort of preview that bottled water turns out to not just be kind of a controversial product, which also has a lot of negative environmental impacts that many might be familiar with. But it, it turns out, and I was surprised to find how deeply connected it is to the um, the social injustice and inequality crisis of uneven access to safe and affordable water, both here in the U.S. Uh, and around the world. I wanted to dig into that big picture, this idea, this debate you set out almost uh, at the beginning uh, 
is water a commodity that I can make money by selling in bottles or in other ways versus is water a public right or a public good that uh, we should take the profit motive out of? Uh, could you talk about how that that conversation has changed over the last few decades? Yeah. So beginning, you know, and the the form in which many people are more familiar with that struggle, that struggle over water should be primarily a human right or a commodity um, provided by the market um, has first sort of came to people's mind and awareness in terms of struggles over whether uh, the provision of public tap water should be privatized in places around the world, um, from Bolivia to um, Indonesia to uh, cities here in the U.S., um, uh, private water companies began uh, taking over the provision of drinking water, and there were a lot of opposition movements that formed um, in response, uh, private companies taking over a, an essential service, and um, water rates would tend to rise, and there were contentions around the quality of the service, um, and a lot of backlash, and it turns out that um, while there was a big push for private tap water provision, there is a counter movement, a strong kind of a counterwind, uh, the, the remunicipalization of many of those systems has taken place. They've come back into public hands. But I think what's gotten less attention is this other major form of what some would call the privatization of, of drinking water, which is the rise of bottled and, and packaged water in, in different forms around the world. And it's sort of growth into a global industry, as you say, passing $300 billion. And I think that it turns out to generate its own kind of opposition movements. There's been less attention to it, but I think that it is set to very quickly become the largest, the fastest growing, and the most significant form of the privatization or the, or the, as you say, the commodification of drinking water. One big development that's turned out to be one of the big problems in bottled water is lightweight plastic. Can you talk about this technological development that really yeah. made it so relatively cheap to ship lots and lots of little bottles of water? Yes, it uh, <laughs> turns out that the, the industry was experimenting with plastic water bottles as far back as 1969, uh, uh, actually. But it wasn't until the early 90s that they sort of cracked the code of making this lightweight PET plastic easily producible and um, sell, you know, so the conversion to PET plastic, that number one plastic lightweight bottles began. And I think if you remember back to the 90s, those who were around, suddenly it seemed like everything was being sold in plastic instead of glass. And PET really was the development, the technological development that allowed the industry to mass produce this product. And um, production and consumption grew very rapidly. And then bottled water became very big business and the big food and beverage companies got involved. And so not coincidentally in the 90s when was also when you saw the big soda makers, Pepsi and Coke, get into the business with Dasani and Aquafina. Um, and they and Nestle uh, and Dannon began buying up smaller bottlers around the country and around the world. Um, and the those four firms, the big four, I call them, um, have led the market both here at home and around the world. Uh, ever since. Talking to Daniel Chaffee about his new book, Unbottled, The Fight Against Plastic Water and For Water Justice. You can join in at 800-642-1234 with your thoughts or questions. Daniel, one big point here, with, with the early days of bottled water, it was like, oh, this is fancy stuff from a spring, you know, artesian wells, whatever. That's not mostly what we're drinking in the United States. Where is our water? When we buy that bottle of water, where is it usually coming from? Right. So the packaging uh, portrays usually pristine springs or lakes and a snow-clad mountain in the background. But in reality, um, 
over the last few decades, the makeup of bottled water has shifted to the point where in the U.S. now, only just a little over a third of bottled water comes from groundwater at all, springs or any other form, and almost two thirds, something like 63% of bottled water sold on the shelves um, is taken simply from municipal water systems, from the city water systems in different communities. It is taken out, uh, refiltered, the companies strip out the mineral content, and then they add their own sort of proprietary mineral mixes, which, you know, give it their trademark taste so that, you know, for example, Dasani would taste the same in Wisconsin as it would in New York State and California, um, which I think incidentally has probably contributed to training people's palates and maybe is one of the reasons why some people express dissatisfaction with the taste of their tap water. Um, but so yes, the vast majority of bottled water in the US now is coming actually simply from public tap systems, but it is, of course, being sold for either hundreds to thousands of times the cost, and I and I will add that on um, on top of the cost difference, the environmental impact is is quite significant. Um, one study calculated that bottled water's energy impact is about a thousand to two thousand times higher per gallon than providing tap water, and then the overall environmental impact, and counting all different factors, is somewhere between newer study somewhere between fourteen hundred and thirty five hundred times higher. So it is a product with a very big uh, ecological footprint. And that's not even to mention the plastic waste crisis uh, on, a, on a global level. Let's mention that plastic uh, issue. Now, I think we th we might think, okay, I buy that plastic bottle, I drink it, I drop it in the bin, gets recycled, it'll show up in the next bottle of water. Mm. Uh, you did find it uh, in water uh, on the shores, I think in Thailand, Daniel, that this is a big <laughs> plastic problem, these single-use bottles. Yeah. I mean, that was my first exposure to this really this global uh, disaster, I think, the ecological disaster of single-use plastic pollution just at a, a place where the shore off of an island was was coated in a floating mass of pl plastic, mostly bottles, but other garbage as well for several hundred feet out. Um, but it turns out that globally, people are consuming between 600 and 700 billion single-use plastic bottles of all beverages. But because bottled water is by far the top selling packaged beverage around the world, it contributes the largest share to that marine waste problem. And one study found that bottles and their caps, the beverage bottles and their caps are the number one marine garbage item. Another study found that they accounted for almost 50% of all marine waste. So dealing with the global single-use plastics issue um, really requires dealing with the problem of uh, single-use beverages, but also particularly packaged water. And um, the U.S. recycling rate is actually quite low for these bottles. It's gone down over the years. It's down to about 26% of bottles were recycled. Most of those do not get turned into new bottles. Only something like 7 to 10% do. The rest are sort of what's called downcycled. They become carpets or whatever, less uh, high-quality products. And around the world, the bottle recycling rate is much lower. It's something like 7 to 9%. Talking to Daniel Jaffe about his new book, Unbottled, The Fight Against Plastic Water and For Water Justice. You can join in at 800-642-1234. Do you avoid plastic water bottles? What led you to do that, if so? Or are they uh, more convenient? Do you maybe trust it more than the tap water at your home or place of work? What questions do you have about the rise of this bottled water industry? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. We'll continue the conversation coming up here on Central Time.
It's Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. We're picking up the conversation with Daniel Jaffe about the bottled water industry and his new book, Unbottled, The Fight Against Plastic Water and for Water Justice. You can join in at 800-642-1234. Let's bring on a caller now. Christina is with us in Glenwood City. Christina, hi. Hi there. Thank you. I More often than not, I get my water uh, in glass bottles, spring water, I want to confirm that when it says spring water, is that in fact spring water and not purified? Christina, thanks for the call. Daniel, you write in the book that uh, regulations, especially if water doesn't cross state lines, uh, are non-existent or vague uh, at best? Right. Well, about the question of spring water labeling, the FDA, so Bottled water, it's worth noting, is treated as a foodstuff and it's regulated by the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA. The FDA does have specific regulations about what can be called spring water. It's fairly liberal. Uh, It can involve getting groundwater in many different ways. Um, Whether companies are abiding by those regulations, I I have no way of knowing. But uh, there is at least a legal definition that they have to uh, be held to. But in contrast to FDA regulation of bottled water, the uh, regulation of tap water systems, our public tap water, is um, falls under the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency. And, you know, it's worth noting that the difference between those two, I, I sort of say, is a, effectively the difference between night and day. Um, there's a, a pretty dramatically uneven playing field between the bottled water industry and um, public tap water providers in terms of the regulatory uh, structures they're under, not so much in terms of the contaminants that they're allowed to have. They're held to roughly the same maximum levels of contaminants. But um, EPA regulation is far more rigorous. Tap water utilities have to test their water more often uh, and have to critically report to the public when they find contamination uh, almost immediately and also publish annual reports. Whereas bottled water companies, the concern is that they uh, test the water themselves. The FDA does inspect plants, but it has a diminishing number of inspectors. And there's been some interesting reporting on this by um, Consumer Reports and other outlets looking at the weakness of the bottled water regulatory regime. Overall, it's very, very unlikely that consumers will find out if and when the the bottled water they're consuming had contamination found. on top of that, I'll just add one more thing around bottled water safety, uh, which is that uh, peer-reviewed academic studies have found recently that um, bottled water contains higher levels of microplastic fragments. And one academic study found that somebody consuming only bottled water uh, would uh, consume 22 times more microplastic fragments than someone who consumed only tap water. So there, there is a difference in the regulation and, and in what the, and what they contain. Christina, thanks for the call. Mike joins us now in Hudson. Mike, hi. Yeah, hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, yeah, two things to note. I guess, one, I've always had a strong preference of things out of a glass versus plastic, so I've not ever been an adopter of the plastic bottle cons- consumer part. But the other question I have is how much of an impact are these water refilling stations having? I just traveled abroad to the U.K. and Ireland, and I was surprised to not see very many of them. Mike, thanks for the call. Daniel, These you read about this in the book. These have sprung up uh, in a lot of places. Have these water refilling stations changed uh, sales of bottled water? So I'm going to assume that the caller is talking about refilling points, uh, water refilling uh, points like water fountains. In other words, getting your tap water out of a, a water refiller. 
um, in in that case, so that is a, uh, a it's really happening um, in a lot of the, uh, the 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 wealthy nations and spreading around the world. The sort of the increasing what I call the reclaiming the tap segment of the movements responding to bottled water's growth. And that is a really fascinating kind of constellation of efforts that have happened between city governments, uh, nonprofit organizations, universities, other public and private institutions, um, the last decade or more to sort of turn back to tap water cities saying, hey, you know, we are the providers of this tap water and we know it's really clean and what does it make any sense for us to be purchasing bottled water for our city government offices or allowing it to be sold say on city property and public parks and a growing number of cities large ones from san francisco to la to new york and others um, but a lot of small communities counties around the country and and really around you know us canada europe and beyond are are um starting to uh uh enact bans on purchasing or selling bottled water on city property. Um, and then the flip side, that sort of required two-step dance that they do if they ban it in some places is to then expand access to clean uh, public tap water, free public tap water in public places. And I think that's one of the most interesting and, and dynamic parts of what's going on is these uh, communities are rolling out shiny new, hundreds of shiny new uh, hydration stations public water fountains, refill points, and then private businesses are getting in on the act. Um, there are networks where, where businesses have have stickers in their windows. There are apps. One uh, big app is called the Refill app. It comes a nonprofit group based in the UK, but it now has, it's gone global. It has 300,000 refilling points on its app. So you can like look to find out what the nearest place you can get a free refill. Sometimes it's in a coffee shop that won't make you buy anything they'll just give you free water and that's sort of taking off as a a movement and it has actually gotten the attention of the bottled water industry and they are concerned i do a lot of reading of market literature and market reports and um the industry is concerned and they say particularly young folks but but across the board people turning back to the tap is making a dent in sales um i just looked at the latest statistics last week in the u.s um, for the first time since the Great Recession, bottled water consumption actually fell by one report, by 1%. And that's new. And I think at least some of that change owes to um, these movements that are taking interest in um, reclaiming the tap. Uh, I quote one uh, representative uh, from a bottled water company who told a conference, quote, the, the water bottle has in some ways become the mink coat or the pack of cigarettes it's socially not very acceptable to the young folks, and that scares me, unquote. So uh, the industry is alert to this, and, and they are concerned. Mike, thanks for the call. Daniel, in our last couple minutes, another part of the story I want to get into, you looked at the, the water crisis in Flint, Michigan, and some other places. Some of the bottled water marketing material, internal material you mentioned, talks about, hey, this is maybe a growth opportunity if people don't yeah. trust your trust their water. And you worry that that's going to lead maybe to uh, dis lack of trust in municipal water and disinvestment in public water supplies. Can you uh, take our last couple of minutes and talk about that? Yeah, that, that's very important. Um, so a counter trend to what I just described, this sort of turning back to the tap among um, people in communities that have the privilege of, you know, high quality tap water, which is the vast majority of U.S. drinking water utilities, by the way, but a small percentage, very small, seven, eight percent of the absolute most of U.S. water systems do have 
um, some uh, water quality health related violation within any given year. And those problems are not evenly distributed. They tend to fall disproportionately in certain kinds of communities, low income communities, rural communities, and overwhelmingly communities um, with uh, uh, predominantly populations of people of color, African-Americans and Latinos in particular. And those, it turns out, are the social groups who also um, distrust their tap water the most and who have turned to buying bottled and packaged water the most. And um, the industry is, is aware of this. And so what we actually now have, I think, is, and 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 rather than sort of say people are misinterpreting, obviously if 20% of people are not drinking tap water, uh, but it's only 7% you know, or 8% of the systems have a violation, some people are turning away from perfectly good water. But rather than say there's a misperception, I think we could see that as a, a logical reading of the uneven distribution of risks. And so um, I argue that um, you know when we have, uh, I think that bottled water is in, in these communities is serving to increase economic and racial inequalities sort of between the clean water haves and have nots. And I think we're only going to really be able to resolve this distrust and problem and the deterioration problem from underfunding of public water systems by restoring that federal role, federal government used to fund it at a much higher level, going back to strong federal funding that will bring up the quality and restore the quality of water systems across the board so that everyone will view tap water once again as trustworthy. Daniel, we'll leave it there. Thanks again for joining us today. Thanks so much, Rob. That's Daniel Jaffe, Associate Professor of Sociology at Portland State University. We've been talking about his latest book, Unbottled, The Fight Against Plastic Water and for Water Justice. Still time for you to share your thoughts over on the Ideas Network Facebook page. You can follow these conversations all the time, anytime online at WPR.org, stream live or check out or share archived copies of conversations here on Wisconsin Public Radio. You can also download the Wisconsin Public Radio app. I'm Rob Ferrett. You're listening to Central Time here on the Ideas Network. It's Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. You're with us here on the Ideas Network. Women make up about 35% of all the agricultural producers in Wisconsin. That's 5% higher than the national average. That's according to the 2017 Census of Agriculture. A project here in Wisconsin has been bringing together multiple groups to work with women to promote conservation and land stewardship. They celebrate a number of Wisconsin women in conservation in a new publication out this month called Portraits of Love on the Land. You could join the conversation at 800-642-1234. Are we talking about you? Do you own, farm, or otherwise look after a patch of land in Wisconsin? What kind of practices do you have in place around conservation, big or small? Do you have questions about opportunities to promote different kinds of conservation on a small patch of land, big patch of land, any point in between? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800 642 one, two, three, four. You can also email ideas at WPR.org. Esther Durayraj is program director for Wisconsin Women in Conservation. She's a research agronomist at the Michael Fields Agricultural Institute. Esther, welcome to Central Time. Hey, Rob. 
Thanks for having me. And Laura Langworthy is director of special projects for the Wisconsin Farmers Union and an owner of Blue Ox Farm in Wheeler. Lauren, thanks for joining us as well. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Esther, you've been uh, celebrating a year of programming this year, including with this new publication I mentioned. Can you tell us what the Wisconsin Women in Conservation Project is all about? So thanks for asking me that question. Wisconsin Women in Conservation is a program that's funded by the Natural Resources Conservation Service and led by the Michael Fields Agricultural Institute, which is based out of East Detroit, Wisconsin. Um, we partner with other nonprofits, as you mentioned, in Wisconsin, namely Renewing the Countryside, Wisconsin Farmers Union and Marble Seed. Um, and we work with women landowners, farmers, um, in order to bring uh, education, outreach uh, about conservation practices. And not only that, we bring resources, um, trying to bring in the finance because women have a lot of questions on their mind, but they are good stewards. Uh, as we know, women are nurturers by nature of their families, of their land. And so, when they want to be better stewards of the land, they have this like a lot of questions about how to go about it and is that even financially possible? So um, we try to be the intermediary, bringing people who are connecting women with women. We also bring NRC's resources to them and see how they can make their dreams possible for the land. And Esther, looking at uh, portraits of love on the land, conservation and stewardship means a lot of different things. Can you talk about uh, a little bit about the range of the projects that participants are doing on, on their own land? Oh, definitely. Yeah, this has been an enjoyable experience for us to bring out this book. So women are involved in um, grazing lands, in agriculture, in urban farming, wetland preservation, soil health, waterways. There's a lot of things that people, uh, women have been working on to be better stewards of the land. And so we, as we work with these women, uh, we want to uh, kind of bring out their voices uh, about what they have been doing. Uh, if you look at like many a times when we Google this, like conservation, not many of those women pop up. So we want to change that landscape because women are doing a lot of things and we want to bring those stories to their forefront. And so this book has brought about all that, so many of their stories and we thank those women who have shared their stories with us and to be open about it, to bring it to the public domain. Lauren, let's uh, visit Blue Ox Farm. Now, it sounds like uh, when you and your partner started this off, you really did have uh, conservation and stewardship in mind right at the outset. Can you talk a little bit about that that mindset, first of all? Absolutely. Well, um, when we started our farm, my, my husband, Caleb, it had really spent a lot of time aspiring to be a farmer and learning a lot about agriculture. And I was more of a nature kid who really enjoyed the outdoors and could picture myself living on a farm and all the wonderful things that could come with it, but certainly had a lot more to learn on the agricultural front. And since then, you know, our, our big adventure has been trying to figure out how to merge both of those visions and try and make our farm both a place that produces food and supports our community, but also has wild space for, you know, the the badgers and the foxes and the, the grassland birds that are endangered. Um, and so trying to balance kind of the, the economic piece and the, the personal livelihood, and then these larger goals for what our, our community and our landscape should look like. It's definitely a challenge, but uh, it's a fun challenge. And your farm, what you actually produce there has evolved over the years, I read in in the book here, Uh, and you've gone into grass-based animal production now, kind of as your main gig. Uh, Could you talk a little bit about how uh, you do that with conservation and stewardship in mind? 
Absolutely. Yeah. It uh, When we first started, we started with vegetable production and we kind of joke that it's a good way to turn sweat into money. Um, doesn't take a lot of infrastructure to get going in vegetables, but it does take an awful lot of work. <laughs> and um, as we were doing annual tillage and running a CSA and wholesale accounts and selling at farmers markets and into food co-ops, we were just feeling like we we're spending a lot of time tilling soil and weeding. There was a lot of bare soil, even with the best production model that we were able to to kind of muster. Um, and I know some people who are able to do it much better than we were, but um, we were looking at ourselves and thinking, why can't we get more perennials into this system? And why can't we get more things covered and have less bare soil, less tillage? And so that really led us on some some self-reflection and some business model reconsideration. And, and that's how we kind of ended up in livestock, specifically rotational grazing. And so that rotational grazing allows us to really provide some good habitat, do soil building and uh, micro building, create a healthy animal, and also um, kind of manage our own labor a little bit better. We're talking about Wisconsin women in conservation. Lauren Langworthy is with us, owner of Blue Ox Farm in Wheeler, and Esther Duraraj, program director for Wisconsin Women in Conservation, also with the Michael Fields Agricultural Institute. You could join in at 800-642-1234. Do you have a conservation or land stewardship project going on your in your backyard, in your uh, 40 acres, whatever land you're working with? Is there something you've been doing uh, to maintain the soil, maintain animal and plant species and more, join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Esther, for that uh, new farmer, uh, maybe a woman getting into farming uh, for the first time or after growing up and then returning to a farm, what kind of help is out there for them here in Wisconsin? What kind of uh, community and mentorship can they reach out for? Okay, so the way we do our program is to have these for a learning circle events. So when they do come into one of these events, they sit with a sister community of women farmers and landowners who are sharing their stories about how they started and how they built their farm or the new beginning farmer has questions, they are able to help them. And we also bring in the FSA um, and the NRCS resource person. So they are able to right away tell them what are the resources that's available for them for purchase of land or for building infrastructure or for all these conservation practices that they can do. And so they go back with a kind of a knowledge of what's available, what's existing. We also have conservation coaches. Lauren is one of our coaches here um, who will be able to tell them what are the different things that like, as she just mentioned, how she thought about a business plan and moved her farm along. These are the, these, these are the kind of stories that the women are exposed to and they learn from each other. So this is basically a peer-to-peer model and we kind of uh, find motivation in each other and help the women grow in as a beginning farmer. And Lauren, I'm looking at a picture of you uh, educating uh, in the book right now. I think, why was it important for you not just to try to make uh, your farm operation a success, but to share uh, lessons you learned along the way with with others? That's a great question. You know, as farmers, we are so busy. We have to have so many different types of skills from uh, business management to all the technical skills of livestock or or plant management and health. And um, there's just so much that you need to learn. And it's really hard to start from zero in all of those arenas and become an expert in the time that we have. Um, And you really only have one opportunity a season for most 
uh, agricultural knowledge to be utilized and then you have to wait until the next year to try it again. So I think any time that we can support each other by sharing the knowledge we've learned, um, especially about things that can be really complex, like how to navigate some of these government program opportunities or how different ecosystems function, um, it really helps us all get further when we can share that knowledge into a general pot as opposed to hold on to it all ourselves. We're talking about the Wisconsin Women in Conservation Project and how it's helping uh, women landowners and other women stewards of land in Wisconsin. Our guests are Esther Durayraj, Program Director for Wisconsin Women in Conservation and Research Agronomist at the Michael Fields Agricultural Institute, and Lauren Langworthy, Director of Special Projects for the Wisconsin Farmers Union and an owner of Blue Ox Farm in Wheeler. A new publication out called Portraits of Love on the Land tells the story of, of a lot of these women getting involved in farmland conservation. You could join in at 800-642-1234. You can join the conversation. Are you doing some kind of conservation project on land you own or on? are you working maybe as a volunteer on public land? Love to hear your story. Or do you have questions for our guests about what it means to do land stewardship and conservation here in Wisconsin? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. You can also email ideas at WPR.org. We'll continue the conversation coming up here on Central Time. This is Central Time here on the Ideas Network. I'm Rob Ferret. We're picking up our conversation about Wisconsin Women in Conservation. Esther Durayraj is Program Director for Wisconsin Women in Conservation and a research agronomist at the Michael Fields Agricultural Institute. And Lauren Langworthy is Director of Special Projects for the Wisconsin Farmers Union and owner of Blue Ox Farm in Wheeler, featured in the new publication Portraits of Love on the Land. You can join in at 800-642-1234. If you're a farmer yourself on a large or small scale, What kinds of conservation things do you do? What kind of stewardship do you do for your soil and land? Uh, And wherever you are, whatever you do, do you try to plant maybe native species to uh, help butterflies and other animal and insect species? Love to hear from you at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. Esther, as I mentioned uh, earlier, you know, this isn't one size fits all. A lot of different people do different conservation uh, projects. How how could people figure out, okay, this is the land I've got. This is the uh, agriculture maybe I'm doing. What kind of conservation methods might be right for me? So when the women or landowners or farmers come to one of our events and express interest in having a conservation plan, Um, Then we right away work with them. We just have something called an intake form where we get the information about their land, their practices that they are adopting as of now, and what they want to see on their land. Um, Sometimes women straight away want to go in for CAUSHA programs, which is the EQ through NRCS, and then we connect them to the NRCS and NRCS professionals walk their land and tell them what is possible for them. And sometimes men, women are not ready to go there. They just want to know what can they do what are the possibilities? What are the limitations? And in that case, then we have the funding to have a technical service provider walk their land. We we make those arrangements. We find the people to walk the land, give them, talk with them, talk about the, the dreams that they have for the land. Like they may have certain dreams that can be possible or not. So this person who walks their land is able to tell them who's a conservation professional, who's able to tell them what works, what may not, what's the other options that they have. 
And then at the end of it, they would get a conservation plan document, which they can have it, think about it, and then go for the next step as soon as possible or as late as possible. It depends on them. But they at least have a knowledge of what can be done on their land. And Lauren, uh, you give a top conservation tip in the uh, Portraits of Love on the Land book. Uh, you start uh, saying, start small. Make the case uh, for being willing to to start small, even if it doesn't seem like it's going to be a big difference maker. Yeah, well, this is, is kind of a joke to those people who know me, but um, I'm not notorious for starting small or, or keeping <laughs> things small. But um, it's it's actually really helpful, especially when you're looking at significant changes to a farming operation to change, you know, a couple of smaller things and see if you like the direction it's going and give it some time to to take hold because conservation really isn't something that happens overnight. And uh, a small change could take years, maybe even to really reflect on the land. And so being gentle and patient with yourself and not feeling like you have to do it all at once or you have to do uh, really, really big things when you're not entirely certain. It can actually help the whole process go a lot more smoothly to make it more manageable and um, more achievable. Esther, I wanted to po- uh, highlight one project in particular. Now, we might think of uh, agricultural stewardship and conservation as something that happens in rural Wisconsin, which it does. You feature, though, a project a project in Milwaukee. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that one? Um, yeah, we have a, we have an urban ag network in Milwaukee as well because you know actually for rural and urban settings the agriculture is totally different sense. Uh, many of the urban gar- people are gardeners, community gardeners, or backyard gardeners, and we don't want them to be let out off the loop. So we have them as well uh, as a part of our group. We meet separately in Milwaukee. Um, we talk with them. Is there any pollinator planting that they would like to have? Is there, um, uh, you know, um, something with the vegetable gardens that they're raising? How can we help them? How can we have their land covered during winters, maybe a cover crop? So these are the options that we talk to them. Uh, And we also brought out a rainfall simulator a a couple of months ago for them to see, like, realistically, what happens when a rainfall event happens on their land. And, you know, uh, we bring such kind of education, which opens the eyes for them to adopt various conservation measures, even if it's in a smaller scale. And Lauren, can you talk a little more? We've talked about why you got into wanting to share uh, education about conservation. On a practical level, what does it mean to be a conservation coach? Well, that's uh, another great question. Um, I think it really depends on the person who's seeking information. Um, So our role is not as formal as, you know, when you go into the NRCS office or the the FSA offices or anything like that. Um, No government centers here. We're just uh, farmers talking to other farmers about what might work and what might not. And so I'm able to share with people um, when I kind of hear what kinds of questions they have and what kind of hopes and dreams they have, I can say, oh, I happen to know about this program that could maybe provide some cost share toward that bigger goal you have. Or I know about an organization that's doing some work in that arena that could help you find some more resources. Uh, there are networks of other men and women that to get connected with. And, and so it's really trying to hear what a person is looking for and help them along their pathway to um, just not have to do it alone and not have to find everything from scratch. 
Talking to Lauren Langworthy and Esther Dureraj about the Wisconsin Women in Conservation Project and the new book from that project, Portraits of Love on the Land, featuring women doing all different kinds of stewardship and conservation. Esther, can you talk a little more about uh, why focusing on women in particular? You were starting to touch on that earlier. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the particular needs of women in conservation and stewardship? Okay. Yeah, that's a great question. Um so the way we look at it, women are nurturers. We see that we take care of the family, we take care of relationships, we take care of the land. We are mostly the glue in every single thing that happens around us. And we see that uh, women have great dreams for their land, but there are a lot of questions in the mind, like, is this workable? Is this financially feasible? And there are times that we find it difficult to ask those questions. Uh, and so when we bring a group of women together, we have seen this great bonding that happens within a period of an hour because we sit in a learning circle. We start out with introductions, which talk about what is the, uh, what, what do you look forward to your land and what have you done on your land? We have different set of questions at different events. And so people start talking about the land and there are, we have like a seasoned landowner. We have beginning farmers who people were seeking the land who all are, seeking for inspiration and motivation, and they, we learn from each other. Uh, it's a sense of togetherness, the sense of working together. So um, the, the way we feel is that, imagine if we can just bring about change in these number, 37% of women are producers now, and if we can bring about a change uh, in how they steward the land in terms of conserving natural resources or bringing a big impact on the landscape, not only helps them, and it and the future generations and the kids are watching their moms. And that's a big change. And that's what is our passion. We, our team drives on that passion. We really want to bring about this uh, love for the land. And that's one of the book. That's the title of the book as well, how we, we really want women who are already loving the land and we want to give them the opportunities to take better care of that. Got an email from Patty in Lake Mills who writes, I farm a thousand acres with our dairy farm. We have a nutrient management plan for our land. We soil sample the land after every crop to see what nutrients the land needs. Also, we plant cover crops like triticale and winter wheat to keep soil in place. And we rotate between corn, alfalfa, and soybeans. Uh, as a, a fellow livestock farmer, uh, Lauren, can you talk a little bit about some of the other conservation options open for people uh, raising animals? Yeah, as with many conservation opportunities, it, it depends so much what your goals are mm -hmm. and what your current infrastructure is. Um, and so, you know, on my farm, we're doing rotational grazing, which means moving animals from paddock to paddock regularly. Um, in our situation, it's pretty much every day they move to a new paddock. And that allows us to capture that manure and urea and put it back into the soil and grow more grass. Um, but not everybody is set up to do that. Not everybody has either the, the land base to do it or the labor to do it. Um, and so there are a lot of different ways that people can improve the conservation around their farm. Anything from waterways to um, your, your caller mentioned uh, planting cover crops mm -hmm. to be able to capture some of that manure. There are just so many things. And, and depending on where you're starting from and where you're hoping to go, there are just uh, so many opportunities for people. Esther, in just our last minute or so, I understand the project has gotten an extension now for another couple of years. Uh, what are your hopes to accomplish over the next year or so? Oh, we are moving into newer territories. We've been working in 18 tri-counties, in, uh, in 18 counties, like six tri-county clusters over the last year. 
we're looking into moving into 12 more co uh, counties this year and the next. And so we really want more women to join us. At present, we almost have like last year alone, we reached out uh, to about 1,000 women landowners who came to our programs and benefited from it. And we're looking to increase those numbers. We're looking to be of value to women landowners. And so I can just call out the uh, the names of the counties that we're going into next year, Trumpelow, La Crosse, Monroe, Dane, Rock, Jefferson, Green Lake, Columbia, Sauk, Eau Claire, Chippewa, and Clark. If you're a woman landowner, please connect with Wisconsin Women in Conservation at www.wiwic.org, www.wiwic.org. We'll get that up at wpr.org slash central time as well, and we'll leave it there. Esther, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much, Rob, for having me. And Lauren, thanks for sharing your work with us. Absolutely. Thank you. Esther Dureyraj is Program Director for Wisconsin Women in Conservation and a Research Agronomist at the Michael Fields Agricultural Institute. And Lauren Langworthy is Director of Special Projects for the Wisconsin Farmers Union and an owner of Blue Ox Farm in Wheeler. We talked to them today about the Wisconsin Women in Conservation Project, how it's been helping educate and provide resources to women farmers and other land stewards around the state. I'm Rob Ferret. You're listening to Central Time here on the Ideas Network. <laughs>